and he's given us his word, and so we stand for the reading of God's word at times to, to reverence it. Amen? We believe that there is power in the word of God. We're in Acts chapter 19. If you want to turn there, we'll also have the scripture on the screens, but listen to this. It's Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. It says this, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus... But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard these things, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Articus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, from whom the the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, Who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. May God bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you today for your presence in this place. And Lord, as we approach your word, we do so reverently, Lord God, but we also do so expectantly, believing that you desire to speak to us today. And so we open our hearts, we open our minds to hear from you, Lord God, and we would just say, have your way in our midst. Continue, as was already said, to refine us and make us more like you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Praise God. Well, it is good to be back home. What a welcome back home, man, coming into the presence of the Lord like that. Uh, It's good to see all of you 
Um, we had traveled, a number of us, you know, to the land of Israel. We got to see the Holy Land, got to spend time in Jerusalem, and, and so many moments on, on that trip that were amazing. But one of them that I think a couple others shared with, we were out in the Sea of Galilee, and we had the opportunity to take a quick boat ride around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, we began to worship there on the Sea of Galilee. You know, when you go to Jerusalem, a lot of, or Israel, a lot of people say, I want to walk where Jesus walked. But, you know, it's just as powerful to sail where Jesus sailed, right? And so there on the boat, we just sense the presence of the Lord in a, a very real and tangible way. So many things that I know we're all still processing. But thank you uh, for your prayers. It is good to be back home. I got to tell you, uh, it is. It's, it's good to be back home. Um, you know, when we were traveling on, on the plane, I, I, I've told you all before, I'm kind of a, a map geek, and so I watch movies on the plane, but then I go to that live view. How many of you like to watch that? I'm like, where are we right now? And, and at one point, we were flying right over Ephesus, which is the text that I was reading, and I said, it's, it's like right down below us, right? But that's where our passage is today, and I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, verse 21 says this. It says, now after these events... When you read that, you have to say what events, right? Well, we saw in last week's passage that Paul finally makes it back to the city of Ephesus. He, he finally returns to this place where he saw an open door for the, the gospel in the synagogues. And right away, we see another Pentecost experience with 12 disciples in Ephesus. Paul, he, he meets these guys and he speaks about the Holy Spirit. And as he shares about the Holy Spirit, they're like, well, who's he, right? They, they didn't know about the Holy Spirit, and so he teaches them, and then he lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they begin to speak in other tongues, they begin to prophesy. And the text lets us know something very important. It was 12 men in all. 12 men, very significant number, right? We have the 12 tribes of Israel. There were the 12 apostles, and now here it's 12 disciples in Ephesus. But remember, there was this open door in the synagogue, and, and for the first time, Paul sees that. He's like, man, I'm going to go back there. And so he goes into the synagogue, and he teaches, it says, for three months. For three months, he's, he's teaching about Jesus as the Messiah, and they're receiving it, they're learning, but eventually there are some that become obstinate, and so he leaves the synagogue, and our understanding is that he probably rented out a lecture hall there in Ephesus, and he spends the afternoons for the next two years sharing the gospel and, and debating with those that would come. He's kind of like becomes this sage in the area where people would come around and they would want to hear what Paul was, was, was speaking, right? And, and scripture tells us, again, he does this for, for two years. And at the end of those two years, all of the Jews and the Greeks who lived in Asia Minor, think about this, all of Turkey heard the word of the Lord. And because of this, there's this great revival that comes to a very ungodly city. Revival comes to a city that was known for selling magical incantations. When Paul was in Athens, he was up against the philosophers of the day. He was up against uh, uh, the intellectualism, if you will, philosophy, right? When he was in Corinth, he was up against the, the pimps and the prostitutes because that was a place of great sexual immorality, prostitution, homosexuality, right? All these things were, were there in Corinth. But when he comes into Ephesus, the battle's different. 
He's coming against magicians. He's coming against sorcerers, right? He's coming against the dark arts, which is why Paul, when he later writes a letter to Ephesus, he says, hey, guys, let me remind you that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, it's against the authorities, it's against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Understand, when they read that letter, they wouldn't have been like, what's he talking about? They would have been like, yeah, that's right, that's our battle is against spiritual forces. And, and so we saw last week that there were even these, these Jewish magicians who tried to invoke the name of Jesus to, to cast out a demon, but it doesn't go how they'd hope, right? Be, because they are presuming to have a power that's not granted to them. Since they're invoking the name of Jesus without his authority, the demonic world was confused. And the evil spirit says, Jesus I know, and, and Paul I know, but who are you, right? The spirit, that, that evil spirit knew Jesus is Lord and Paul's his servant, but these men were nobodies in the spiritual realm, and so the question is, who are you? Seven sons of a high priest could not answer that question. They could not say, we're sons of the living God, we're bought and we're sanctified by the blood of Jesus, but let me ask you, what about you? Can you say that today? When the enemy says, who are you? Do you know that you're a child of God, that you've been bought by by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? You can answer boldly. And so get this, these men, they're they're overpowered and they're run out of the house and scripture tells us this, they're bloody and they're naked. And can I just say the TikTok video goes viral, right? Everybody hears it, everybody sees it. Like, did you see this, right? I mean, news like that, crazy news like that travels fast. And apparently there were those in Ephesus at that time who were still living as, as syncretists, meaning they wanted to follow Christ, but they also wanted to continue to hang on to their sorcery and, 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 and demonic things, really. But after they see what happens to these seven sons of a high priest, they realize the truth about demonic powers, right? And so they begin to confess all this occult that they had been involved in, right? They begin to confess those things. They realize, man, it is far too dangerous to dabble in both worlds because one world is a world of love and of grace and the other is violent and destructive. And can I just say, it's no different today. There are still those who want to serve Christ and yet hang on to things that are not of him. But when our eyes are open to the reality of the spiritual realm, can I just say, it ought to cause us to run from anything that is not of God, amen? And that's what happens in Ephesus. There's this revival that takes place, and so all those who practice witchcraft, they bring their books together, they bring their scrolls together, and they burn them. And Luke lets us know the value of them was about 50,000 pieces of silver. We're talking about an estimated value of between $1 million and $5 million worth of, of books and on the occult, right? And listen, they don't sell them off. They don't say, well, we'll just throw them on eBay and see what we can get, right? They, they burn them. They, they destroy them because they don't want others to be deceived. When we talk about that, this is a sensitive topic, right, about like banning books, certain books, right, today, there's this sense that it's closed-minded or it's backward to think that way. You ought to let people read whatever they want to read. But when we know something is evil and we know something is destructive, right, the most loving thing we can do is to destroy that evil to keep others from it. And so here they are. They don't give them away. They don't sell them off. They destroy them so they're of no use to others. 
And, and so get this, there's this revival that's taking place in Ephesus, and it sends a very clear message to the demonic realm. There, there's a very clear move of God, and, and whenever we see a move of God, right away we usually see the opposition of the enemy. That's what we see here in our text. Verse 21 tells us that Paul resolved in his spirit that he's going to go through Macedonia and Uchaya. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and after that he wants to go and see the church in Rome. And I, I love the wording there. It says, Paul resolved in his spirit. He, he's guided by the Holy Spirit. He says, all right, here's, the Spirit's guiding me, and here's my itinerary. He intends to make one last trip through some of the churches that he planted, and then he's about to move on to new territory. He wants to go to Rome. He says, I gotta see Italy, and then he wants to go over to Spain, which was the, the westernmost part of the Roman Empire at that time. Because Paul was a man with a passion. He was a, a man with a passion to see that the world heard about Jesus' death and resurrection. And so he sends Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia ahead of him while he goes to finish the work in Ephesus. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writes that he wants to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because he sees a door that's open to him, but he also sees there's many adversaries that are coming against him. Again, here's the reality. Whenever you see a work of God, you can be sure the enemy will do something to try to hinder it. And because so many are turning to Jesus for salvation in Ephesus, understand that the sale of idols is decreasing. Idol stock plummeted, right? Idol sales plummeted, and that's a good thing unless you're an idol maker, right? And so one of those idol makers begins to oppose Paul. He's a man by the name of Demetrius. Look at what it says there in verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In other words, there was a big disturbance. It says concerning the way. Now remember, the way was the early name of the Christian movement because Christians declared that Jesus was the way to have peace with God. And so the work is going so well, Paul's considering leaving Ephesus, he's, and, and just as he's thinking about that, this commotion arises. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with workmen in similar trades. He said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And so, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not God. So Demetrius, uh, he gets others together who make a living off idolatry. And he's honest to begin with. He starts out with a real issue. He says, guys, we're losing money because Paul is being successful at turning people away from idolatry, right? He's complaining that Paul had great success all over Asia Minor, and because people are getting saved, it's really hurting his bottom line. Because people used to travel through Ephesus, whether on business, they're going through there on trade, and they would come through and they would generally buy a little shrine to this false god Artemis, but now they're not interested anymore. And I, and I read that and I think, man, wouldn't it be great if we were so successful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that the new age businesses in Rockland County began to shut down, right? That the strip clubs no longer had new customers, right? And so they began to shut their doors, right? So that the drug dealers go out of business because lives are being changed and people are actually turning away from sin. And so get this, Demetrius is upset because it's hitting him where it really hurts, you know, you can never step on a man's wallet without hearing him say, ouch, right? 
The most sensitive part of a person's anatomy is their pocketbook. And Paul just touched that. How? Just by simply spreading the gospel. He doesn't stand outside of the temple and pick it against the Artemis worshipers. No, no sense here that he's holding out signs. He simply spoke the positive truth of the gospel and let the negative consequences happen to the false religions. And here's one of the great differences between the false religions and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's this, that the gospel is free. The gospel is free. Salvation is the free gift of God. Now, I, I know it seems risky to say this, but I have to say it. We don't believe here at Grace Point that giving is necessary for salvation. Like if you're here today and you're giving, thinking that your giving will somehow save you, you can stop, right? Stop trying to earn salvation. At the same time, let me say this. I know that when someone is truly saved, they become a, a generous person, right? Radically generous person. Once you've had your own life transformed by the power of the gospel, you want that for other people, right? And so you begin to put your resources there, not just your money, but your time. You say, I want to be a part of what God is doing here. He changed my life, and I want to see other lives changed. You know, we receive offerings here at Grace Point, but we never charge an admission fee at the door, right? You're welcome to come regardless. And here's the thing, though. On the other hand, if you want to go somewhere and have your palms read, it will cost you. If you want to go and get your chakras aligned, it will cost you. If you want to buy your horoscope or get your fortune told, you better have your credit card ready. But salvation is the free gift of God. Salvation is the free gift of God. And so when you, you look at the opposition from Demetrius and these other idol makers, it's actually a great compliment to the effectiveness of the gospel in that region. Lives are being changed. Think about it. The man who used to visit the temple prostitutes is now learning how to be faithful to his wife and lead his family. The, the practice of, of witchcraft is dying out. Uh, again, Paul's not really on a mission to shut the temple down. That's not his goal. He's just proclaiming the gospel. And as people come to Jesus, they naturally stop worshiping this goddess. They stop buying the shrines. They want nothing to do with the temple. Listen, I believe that Christianity should affect the economy. I believe that our faith should affect the economy, right? Not just personally, but as a community as well. We, we should give our money and we should give our resources to things that honor God, and we should keep our money from things that do not honor God. It, listen, this is the one, one of the ways that we as believers can actually transform our society. Some of you will say, well, I, that doesn't work. They're going to make money. No, listen, if the church, if the, the believers would really stand up and say, I'm not going to invest in that, I'm not going to give to that, it, things would begin to change. But so often we compromise and say it's no big deal. It was Spurgeon who said this. Listen to what he said. He said, I wish the gospel would affect the trade of London. Oh, I wish it might. There are some trades that need affecting. How many of you would say that today? There's some trades that, that need affecting, right? They need to be cut a little shorter, not by an act of parliament. Let acts of parliament leave us alone. We can fight that battle alone. But may it come to an end by the spread of the gospel. He says this, I have no faith in any reformation that does not come through men's hearts being changed. Wow. That's what's happening in Ephesus, you see. Hearts are, are being changed, and reformation is coming, and that's what America needs. It needs hearts that are changed, and then reformation will come. Demetrius continues his speech. Listen to this. He says, there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. 
and, and she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. Now, he's exaggerating a little bit there, but he's very clever in the way that he speaks. First of all, he says, guys, I know this is hurting you financially, but then he tries to appeal to them on the basics, uh, basis of civic pride, right? It's almost as he's, if he's saying, how dare Paul come into Ephesus and he despise our great temple? Like, this is the biggest tourist attraction around, right? How dare he speak against the temple? At that point, there were 39 cities that had temples to, to this goddess Artemis, or her Roman counterpart would be Diana, okay? But the temple in Ephesus, it was the largest. It was the headquarters, if you will, because it was the place where they believed that this meteorite had fallen from the sky in that location, and so they worshipped really that, that black meteorite, and then they, they fashioned an, an image from that uh, that was really just a grotesque image of a woman. I, I think I have a picture of it here. I want you to see this is uh, the goddess Artemis, okay? Uh, the lower part of her body was wrapped like a mummy, and the idol was covered with, with many breasts. Really, it's a symbolizing fertility. A and the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was famous all around the world, so much so that Ephesus was considered the, the guardians of the temple, right? And, and the temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was huge. And and when I say huge, I mean it, it, was, it was gigantic for that time. I think we have a picture of the temple there in Ephesus. We said there was 127 pillars on an area uh, of building that measured 425 feet long by 20 feet wide. The pillars in the temple stood 60 feet tall, higher than the, the roof of, of this auditorium right here. It was, it was bigger than the footprint of the Pantheon in Athens, Greece, on the Acropolis, which of itself was, was massive. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And there in the center of the temple was some depiction, like the gross image that you saw before on the slide, again, a multi-breasted idol. And you, you look at that idol and you say, no wonder it was cast down from heaven, right? I wouldn't want that either, right? But think about this. If Artemis could be destroyed in her magnificence by the preaching of just one man, Paul, is she really that magnificent after all? Like, isn't it strange how this man tries to get the crowd worked up to defend a goddess? Can't the goddess defend herself? And if not, she's not much of a goddess, wouldn't you say? In reality, this is, isn't about the goddess Artemis. It is more about the God of mammon. It's really what it's about. These guys are being hit uh, in the pocket, right? And, and so mammon is really the God that's being worshiped here. The scripture says it's the love of money that is the root of all evil, right? Verse 28, when they heard this, they heard him speaking. He's getting a crowd riled up. Yeah, they, they cry out, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, why are they crying out greatest Artemis of the Ephesians? Because if they simply yelled out, we're losing money, no one would care, right? No one would pay any, any attention to it. But they knew they could get people worked up over the pride of the city. This is our great temple, and they're, they're trying to take it down. And so that becomes their rallying cry. It's very much the same in our world today. Don't be fooled into thinking that Planned Parenthood is so concerned with a woman's right to choose. Okay, in reality, they're only concerned with women choosing one way, and it's the way that brings them business. It's the way that makes them money, okay? And so if they just said, we want your money, that wouldn't work. But they begin to say, oh, a woman has a right to choose. 
Did you know that Planned Parenthood's combined annual revenue is over $1.3 billion per year? If they really cared about people, they wouldn't need to make that kind of money. And it's interesting because $530 million, about almost half of that, is in government funding. Understand, sometimes people are just looking for a rallying cry that people can get behind so that they can get money in their pocket. They don't care at all about the cause that they're proclaiming. In the end, again, it's all about their money. <laughs> it's all about their pockets, right? They worship the God of mammon. And again, the love of money is the root of all evil. But look at verse 28. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them some of Paul's companions. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. All right, so they stop him. So these craftsmen, they, they grab a couple of Paul's friends and they, they drag them into the theater in Ephesus excavations of the city of Ephesus show us that there was a, a main street in that city about 36 feet wide. I think I have a picture of it here. And it was called the Arcadian Way. You can see it right there. That's the Arcadian Way. A and the street was paved with marble. There were colonnades on each side. And that street would run directly into the theater that could sit about 25,000 people. If you have the opportunity to go to Ephesus today, you can see exactly where this took place. And so 25,000 people gathered together in an uproar. They're in that coliseum there, in that, that surrounding, in that stadium there. And, and Paul's like, man, I want to go. <laughs> There's a crowd. Think about this, how crazy Paul is. He's like, 25,000 people, I want to go preach, right? And they're like, no, no, Paul, this is not the time, right? And so they urge him not to go. This might have been one of those times when Paul's bravery only made things worse. But look what the passage says. It says some were crying out one thing and some were crying out another. And there's this great confusion among all who are gathered there. Look at verse 32 again. It says most of them did not know why they had come together. I don't even have to say anything about that. That's just hilarious in and of itself, right? It's this mob mentality, rah, rah, rah. What are we mad at? <laughs> what? what? What are you protesting again, right? And, and I think a lot of protests we've seen in the last few years that hit the streets, maybe there's a good cause and then people get together and they get all crazy and they march and they take the selfies and in the end they're like, why are we here? There's not an understanding of the real issues, right? It's kind of like a bar fight. Somebody starts punching and you, you don't know who's on which side, but you just get in the mix, right? You have one group and then another, and so that's what's happening here. It's sort of like an ancient bar fight in the Ephesus theater, and, and there's so much confusion that somewhere along the line, they're like, why are we even here? But if you consider Rome's attitude towards disorder, this thing is getting really out of hand. This is not a mostly peaceful protest. This is crazy, right? Verse 33 says, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. So some of the crowd, they want to put forward the, the ruler of the synagogue, this, this man Alexander. We hear about him later on in Paul's epistles. But at the same time, the city knew this. The Jews are against idols, so how's that going to work out, right? But I think for Alexander, he just wants to make a distinction between the Jews and the Christians to save him from any repercussion, right? But he never gets a chance to speak. And so the riot ends like it begins with the crowd chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 34 tells us this goes on for two hours. Two hours. Think about it. At least 25,000 people in an arena with amazing acoustics. The noise must have been deafening it as it echoed through the streets of Ephesus. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But just think about the echoes of our time. 
where regularly 40 or 50,000 gathered together on a Sunday right about this time, and they say, great is my sports team, right? Or, or some say, great is my political party, so great I won't even question the things they do, right? And, and yet when the church comes together and we say great is the Lord Jesus Christ, we're regarded by many as being strange. If that's the case, I say, so be it. So be, count me as strange, right? But for all the supposed greatness of Artemis, understand this today. Here's the great takeaway. Don't miss this. It's the fact that no one worships Artemis today. No one, at, at least not directly, right? You want to see the remains of, of that Greek temple in Ephesus? I think you want to see this. Like, this is what's left today, right? Of, of that great temple, right, that, that, that he took so much pride in, of, of that great temple uh, of the goddess Artemis, this is what remains today. There's only really one column there, and you can see it's just made up of pieces. And yet, here's the reality. Today, there are billions of believers who live for Jesus and worship Jesus. There are billions of believers around the globe who would willingly die for the name of Jesus. Because hear me, idols and false gods have expiration dates, but Jesus lives forever. Jesus lives forever. The name of the Lord lives forever. And so here, as, as, as we wrap up this, this, uh, this setting here, the town clerk, the mayor, he comes in and says, guys, you need to calm down, okay? Everybody knows Ephesus is a great place. Everybody knows the temple's a great place to visit. Everybody knows about the sacred stone. So why doesn't everybody just calm down? He says, these guys are not blasphemers. These guys are not sacrilegious. He's saying, if you guys have a complaint, you need to take it to the courts. This is a city issue. We'll handle it. Now, I doubt the, the town clerk saw it or he understood it, but we understand what's happening here, don't we, right? God works so mightily in Ephesus that the devil says, I'm gonna try to do something to stop this. And this occasion, again, may be one of the reasons why Paul writes specifically about the spiritual battle that each of us as believers face against the powers of spiritual darkness. Remember, he writes that to the church in Ephesus. But this chapter teaches us something so very important. It's this, that when disciples of Jesus Christ, when followers of Jesus Christ have a true revival, that society will get a revolution. When the Spirit of God really moves through the church, the, the community that surrounds that church will begin to change. In other words, true revival in the church affects the world. A lot of people talk about revival. Pastor, we want revival. We want revival. But what they mean by revival is I want spiritual goosebumps and I want to feel good. But when true revival comes like it came to the city of Ephesus, things begin to change. Would you stand with me today? I want you to bow your head this morning. I want you to understand today that you're a part of the body of Christ. You heard today it was said that, that God's refining us. He's, he's changing us. He's shaping us. But hear me today, church, there's a reason for that. There's a reason that he, that he wouldn't just leave us where we are and say, you're good, you're good to go. You got heaven, you're good. No, he wants to change us. He wants to shape us. Why? So that we can have an impact on the community around us. That people can look at our lives and, and they could, can see something different, right? And, and so here's the reality for this that we see with Paul. He spends time in Corinth. He spends time in Ephesus. 
He spends about five years in these two places, and it tells us this, that discipleship takes time. And I want to encourage you this morning with heads bowed around this room to press into that, to really say, God, would you change me and shape me? Listen, if you're standing here today and you say that you're honestly, you're in the same place spiritually that, that you were last year, this time, something needs to change. God desires to, to shape you and change your life. Discipleship is necessary, and, and God desires it for you in your own life so that you would be a light to the world around us. Paul's about to head to Macedonia. He's about to go to Greece. He's about to encourage the believers, and, and he's going to say this. He's going to say, in spite of the persecution and in spite of the hardship, I want to encourage you to remain faithful. And then he encourages them with this. He says, I, I want to encourage you to live as redeemed children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. He encourages them. He, he gives them the word of God. And can I just say, nothing will shape your life more than the word of God. If, if you want to continue to move forward in who God has you to be, you've got to be in the word. You've got to be in the word. You've got to let that word shape you. You've got to let that word change you. And, and so I just want to share as we close today, Man, I am thankful I had the opportunity to fly over Ephesus. Thankful that I had the opportunity to reflect on what God did there, man, 2,000 years ago. But I'm praying God does it in our time, and I'm praying God does it here. I'm praying he does it in our time, and he does it here. Listen, you can have all the faith you want in, in politicians. Listen, I believe we should pray and we should vote. We should do our part. But in the end, it's up to us as the people of God to stand on the principles of God and the word of God. And that's what brings change. That's what brings revival. So I want you to take a moment and just say, let revival start here. Maybe even uh, draw a circle around yourself and say, let revival start here. God, change me, shape me. I don't, I don't want to stay stagnant, Lord. I want you to do something in my life that would change my home, <laughs> that would change my workplace, that would change my community. Come on, begin, just begin to pray. Just ask him for that. Ask him for that. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let him refine you. Let him refine you. Let him refine you. Hallelujah. Come on, just begin to cry out to him. Begin to ask that he would do that in our time. What, what he did in Ephesus, that it would be in our time, that, that, that Rockland County would be changed, that the tri-state area would be changed because we would shine. We would shine. Come on, church, just begin to ask. Say, God, work in my life. Refine me, Lord God. Make me a light in a dark place. Lord, use us, Lord God. Hallelujah. Lord God, we just thank you today for who you are. We thank you, Lord God, for the encouragement that comes from your word. Lord God, that it was one man. It was the apostle Paul, his faithfulness in one area to preach and to teach for two years. And all of Turkey heard the gospel. Lord God, may we be faithful as a church to continue to preach your word and teach your word. May we be faithful as your church, not only as your church gathered, but as your church gathered to, to share the word this week in our workplaces and in our homes. Lord, we desire that you would use us for your glory and for your honor. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We're going to do something as we close today that we don't normally do, and that is we're going to receive an offering for, for missions. 
And I love this offering because none of it stays in the house. All of it goes out to support missionaries that we stand with around the globe. And I was thinking, man, as we're going through this text, what a better time to give, right? You can invest your money in a lot of different places. But again, none of this offering stays in the house. All of it goes out to our missionaries around the globe, some that are on the front lines, just like Paul was in Ephesus declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and lives are being changed. And so as we worship, the ushers are going to come and give you an opportunity to give today uh, towards missions. If you give through pushpay, you can designate it that way. But let's just worship the Lord. Let's continue to worship him, amen, as we, as we give and as we lift our hands before him today.